0: Luke chapter 11, you'll find that on page 869 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And we come to consider one of the most famous stories which Christ ever offered. A wonderful and powerful passage. I trust that God will be pleased to do a good work in your life and in mine. And so Luke chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 25. Hear now the word of God. Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives that we may be more like Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was several decades ago that Hugh Rudd, a CBS anchorman and reporter, was mugged outside his New York City home. Rudd was beaten badly and left lying there moaning next to the doorstep. After eventually being rescued, he explained how he watched for hours people walk past him, ignoring his moans for help. Even the milkman, he said, came and set the milk bottles next to where I lay, and left. No one stopped to see what was wrong until dawn. More recently a woman fell in a, in, in a convenience store and she lied in the aisle of the convenience store unconscious. Video surveillance shows people actually stepping over her to take things from the shelf without bending down to see if she was alive or if they could help. Well, perhaps in these cases the, the problem was there was no Christian around to come to the rescue. Well, perhaps not. Recently, a couple psychologists performed an experiment when they asked seminary students on short notice to come give a talk to a group of professors on the parable of the Good Samaritan. On the way from the classroom to the dormitory, each of these students encountered a man moaning along the walkway for help. The experiment, of course, would, would these students actually stop to help the individual? Now, I'll remind you, these are seminary students. They want to be pastors. These are individuals who had just studied and prepared to give a talk on the Good Samaritan. And less than half stopped to help. The majority hurried on their way to give their presentation on how to love the hurting. What about you? Would you stop on your way? What, what, if, what if you were late? What if you were on your way someplace important? What if stopping was dangerous? Would you stop and help? We come to this wonderful story here in Luke chapter 11. We, we find ourselves in a place in Luke's gospel where Jesus had now spent a couple of years in powerful ministry in Galilee determining who he was. He has been now confessed as the Messiah, the Son of God. He has shown it to be true on the Mount of Transfiguration. And off he heads to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51, he set his face to Jerusalem. There he would go to die for sin and sinners. And as he goes, in the next nine chapters of Luke's Gospel, he teaches those who are literally following him how to actually follow him with their lives. He teaches them how to be a disciple. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that disciples are utterly devoted to Jesus. Last week we saw that disciples are sent by Jesus. And today we see that disciples should love like Jesus. In fact, I particularly find it interesting how, how Luke puts Luke 10 together. As we saw last week that every one of us has a message that we are given and that we are to urge other people to believe. And then right following that we're told that we are to love people whether they accept that message or not. And we're not just sent with a message, we're sent to love like Jesus. And so I want to consider this story with you, and we're going to do it a little bit differently than what we normally do. I'm going to walk us through the parable, and then once we're finished with the parable, we're going to draw out uh, the, the implications, the, the theological principles. That may mean nothing to you, and if it doesn't, don't worry about what I just said. If you're taking notes, just know that the points come at the second half of the message. All right? Here we go. So it begins with a conversation with a lawyer, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we hear the word lawyer. We might think immediately a courtroom setting. This is not that type of lawyer. This is a biblical scholar. He would be an expert in the biblical law. The modern-day equivalent would be perhaps this would be a seminary professor who comes and asks Jesus this question and does so for a particular reason. He wants to, according to Luke, to test Jesus. And so the question looks respectful and interesting, but on the inside there's animosity towards Jesus. He's not honoring him. He's trying to trap Jesus. And he, he might be trying to trap Jesus because he's somewhat annoyed with Jesus' behavior. Of course, Jesus turned the world upside down at this point, and Jesus is doing so by welcoming sinners, welcoming lawbreakers. And so he's perhaps trying to expose Jesus as someone who disregards the law of God, comes to him and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if Jesus says, keep the law, the lawyer will undoubtedly respond. Well, why do you violate the very law you tell us to keep? If Jesus says it doesn't matter about the law, God accepts everyone just the way they are, then the lawyer would say, clearly Jesus is now rejecting the revelation of God. Either way, Jesus looks stupid, the lawyer looks smart, and everybody says, wow, I want to spend more time with the lawyer, I want to go to his class. Okay? And so he comes and traps Jesus. Now I want you to also notice, he does not ask an obscure question. He goes right to the heart of it, doesn't he? This is not some technical question. This is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that question? I think it perhaps would be helpful for you even as we look through this passage to create your own answer in your mind. It's a good question. I agree with J.C. Ryo, who said 200 years ago, It's a question which deserves principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. It is a question, unfortunately, which unhappily few care to consider. Thousands are constantly inquiring, what shall we eat? How can we get money? How can we enjoy ourselves? Very few will ever give a moment's thought to to the salvation of their souls. They hate the subject. It's a good question. Well, with perhaps your answer in your mind, consider... The conversation and Jesus answer. You know, verse 26. He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" Right. So Jesus turns it back on him, doesn't he? He Says, "Well, you're an expert, right? He's an expert in what? Well, the law, right?" And so Jesus says, "Okay, you're an expert. You tell me what it says." Now, you see, now the man's under examination, right? The light is now upon him. And notice what he says to Jesus in verse 27: "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind." and your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting two Old Testament passages, one from Deuteronomy 6 and the one that was read for us by Craig this morning, Leviticus 19. This is a summary of the Old Testament law. Right, Even if you think about the Ten Commandments, you break them up into two tables. The first four commandments tell us how to love God. The last six commandments tell us how to love our neighbor. And so you could summarize the law by saying it is to love God and to love your neighbor. Notice, by the way, when he, he, he's going to the Old Testament to justify this. He's going to the very heart of the Old Testament to prove this. The lo- Old Testament tells us to love God and to love others. I say that because we probably would do well to get rid of the nonsense that the Old Testament is about wrath and the New Testament is about love. Right? He does not summarize the Old Testament by saying, well, the the law tells us to kill our enemies. Right? He summarizes the Old Testament and says, you know what we're supposed to do? We are supposed to love. Well, Jesus hears his answer and responds to him in verse 28, and he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and live. Right? You're right. This is how you have eternal life. Now, by now, the lawyer's looking kind of foolish. He already knows the answer. So, why is he asking the question if he already knows it? He, he looks petty. And what's even worse, Jesus is now telling the lawyer to do what the lawyer just preached to Jesus. Right? Jesus is getting the better of him. Perhaps you could hear the people snickering in the background at this foolish lawyer. He's trapped. But have no fear, he's a lawyer. Which means he's good at finding loopholes. And so he goes for one, according to verse 29. But he said, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, doesn't that just sound like a lawyer? Let's define the terms, right? It all depends on what you mean by my neighbor. And he's doing this, according to Luke, to justify himself. Now there's a warning here, isn't there? Because this man is speaking to the Son of God about loving God and loving others and at the same time is testing Jesus and justifying himself. Please understand that there is a form of religion that has a clear knowledge of truth and a self-justifying heart. And it is a dangerous religion. And he comes to Jesus and says, of course, love your neighbors. Yeah, we all know that, but it's not that easy. Life is complicated. Technically, who is my neighbor? Now, is he asking because he wants to know how many people he gets to love? Is he hoping Jesus will say, everyone's your neighbor? And he says, oh, great, I get to love everyone now. Or is he asking because he wants to know who he gets to exclude? Right? Who do I don't have to love? Let's let's reduce the neighborhood a little bit here. And this is what he has a tendency to do. By the way, it's what you have a tendency to do. And it's what I have a tendency to do. We want to limit and reduce the law to what we already are doing. Right? We, we have that tendency. The apostles have that tendency. Jesus goes around and says, forgive. And the apostles begin to get nervous. What do you mean forgive? How many times do I have to forgive? They literally ask Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone as if they were going to keep a punch card? Okay, that's number eight. And that's number 28. How many, when's the limit on forgiveness? Right? And, and Jesus, Jesus is not looking to limit forgiveness. He's looking for opportunities to forgive. He's looking for opportunities to love. In fact by the way he'll never answer this man's question who is my neighbor instead he, Jesus will ask another question who uh, are you a neighbor right in other words you need to stop caring about the relative worth of people and instead become a neighbor yourself he does this in perhaps the greatest story that Jesus ever told recorded in verse 30 Jesus replied A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. You notice this man is in a terrible state. He's along this road. It's a 17-mile-long road through the desert filled with caves and sharp turns, a perfect place for robbers. In fact, so many people have been robbed by this point in Jesus' life. So many people have been killed on this stretch of the road that the road in Jesus' day had a nickname. It was called the Bloody Way. And this man is in a, has been robbed on the road. And not only robbed, he's been stripped naked. And not only naked, he's been beaten. And according to Christ, he has been left half dead. So you imagine this. No money, no clothes to bandage wounds, no strength to walk out. It's just his battered body soaking the trail with his own blood. And the question immediately comes up, who will come to rescue this man in his time of need? Who will be a neighbor? Well, along comes somebody, according to verse 31, now by chance... The priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here comes the rescuer, right? At least that's what we think. A priest, this is God's man. Couldn't be better? In fact, Jesus is kind of hinting at this. Now by chance, he says, right? Is this not God's providence bringing help? And yet, unfortunately, what does the priest do? He sees the need, and he passes on by. Well, along comes another in verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, this would be like a, a priest's assistant. They were the maintenance crew in the temple. A Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him, pass by on the other side. So both men, by the way, leaving Jerusalem on their way undoubtedly from serving in the temple. If, just to modernize it, they're leaving church, if you will. They have God's Word on their mind, God's people in their heart, and they depart from God's building and they fail to follow God. You kind of wonder what their excuses might be. I read a number of sermons on this passage and it seems like pastors like to speculate. What must they have thought of? You know, maybe uh, they didn't have money or they in a hurry or something else. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, he he thought about the excuses that they might have had. He imagined the excuses and went over one after another. And he saw that his congregation was beginning to smile at the absurdity of all these excuses. Their smiles did not suit well with the great preacher. For he said to his congregation, you have smiled over what the priest might have said. But if you make any excuse for yourself whenever real need comes before you, you need not smile over your excuses. The devil will do that. You had better cry over them. For there is the gravest reason for lamenting that your heart is hard towards your fellow creature when they are in need. Well, those aren't the only people that pass by. You notice, thirdly, there is, according to Jesus in verse 33, a Samaritan. You even notice how he begins the sentence, but... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, if you were listening to this story, when Jesus told you it, this, it's not what you would be expecting. You had a priest and then a Levite. And you're now expecting, you know, um, the average Jewish layman, right? It would be like you start with a pastor. He walks by. The deacon walks by. And then what do you expect? Well, you expect just kind of simple guy uh, Israelite. But you notice he's not a Jew at all. He's a Samaritan. In fact, the audience listening to Jesus would probably think the villain has now arrived. He's come to finish the work that he had already started, for they hated the Samaritans. We call this the parable of the good Samaritan. That's outrageous to them. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan. I remind you, it was just not a couple weeks ago that James and John wanted to call down fire upon a village. A village filled with what? Samaritans. They were mongrels, outcasts. The Mishnah said that eating the bread of Samaritan is like eating the flesh of a swine. They are barred from the temple. In fact, when um, the Israelites returned to the temple, the Samaritans wanted to help them to rebuild it. They barred them from helping them and excluded them from the temple. So the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim 400 years before Jesus was born, only to have it destroyed by the Jewish people. Of all the dirty, filthy names that they could think of calling Jesus, the worst came in John chapter 8, calling him a Samaritan. Right? And this Samaritan who hated the Jews and the Jews hated him, saw him just like the other people, but unlike the priest and the Levite, he had what? Compassion on him. You see, he is no villain. After the pastor and the deacon walk by, the equivalent would be the Islamic fundamentalist comes and sees the Christian dying on the side of the road and he helps him out of compassion in his heart. It would have been startling to them. And by the way, notice how he helps. Verse 34, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. His compassion is extravagant. He performs first aid, takes him to a place to recover, pays his bills. You know what he's doing. He is loving his neighbor as himself. How would he like to be loved in that situation? He is doing exactly that. Jesus concludes the story with a question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice this is a different question. The lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? Jesus does not ask, was the wounded man a neighbor? The focus is not on the dying man but the people walking by and he asks which one of those three proved to be a neighbor. In other words, rather than trying to figure out who qualifies for your love, figure out whether you are loving. Don't try to determine who your neighbors are. Just be one. Man knows the answer. It is obvious, though he can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. For he says in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus responds by saying, you go and do likewise. You go become a person with a compassionate heart. You go be a neighbor. For those of you who follow Christ, please understand what Christ teaches us is that a neighbor is what you are. A a neighborly love is your way of life. You are to be this. And Jesus teaches us what it's like. I want you to note four truths about neighbor love from this passage. First of all, a neighbor loves all the time. I think you and I want to limit who we have to love. We want to love those people who are like us. But Jesus very purposely puts a Jew on the road and a Samaritan coming along and he's telling us that your neighbor is not someone like you, your neighbor is instead someone in your life who has any need. Do not Jesus is saying, Don't you dare try to limit whom you're going to love. Jesus does not carve people into groups. This group's worthy of my love. This group is not worthy of my love. True Christ like love overlooks skin colour and social status and lifestyle, and sexual orientation. It looks past all that. And it loves all people. See, we, we, we have this natural tendency, friends. We, we want to love people like us. People similar to us. But Christ is saying, no, you need to love those you would ordinarily, naturally despise. even Even your enemies. I love the story of the British officer, Ernest Gordon, who was held captive in the infamous Japanese prison camp on the River Kwai. After he was freed and traveling home along with his other soldiers, Gordon and these prisoners came across a train full of wounded Japanese soldiers nearly dying of neglect, and Gordon immediately began to get up and to minister to their needs. Others followed suit, but not everyone. In fact, a fellow soldier was deeply offended and said to him, What bloody fools you all are! Those are the enemy. And Gordon recounts the story saying, Have you never heard of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? I asked him. He gave me a blank look, so I continued. He was attacked by thugs, stripped of everything, and left to die. Along came a priest, he passed by. Then a Levite, a man of high principles, he passed by as well. Next came a Samaritan, a half caste, a heretic, an enemy. But he didn't pass by. He stopped. His heart was filled with compassion. Kneeling down, he poured some wine through the unconscious lips, cleansed, cleaned, and dressed the helpless man's wounds, then took him to an inn where he had him cared for at his own expense. But that's different, the officer protested angrily. That's in the Bible. These are swines who have starved us and beat us. They have murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. Gordon concludes saying, I responded, yes, they are our enemies. And my enemy is my neighbor. We are to love all people. This is how the early church grew, by the way grew throughout the Roman Empire because it loved not just their own, but those who were outside their group. In fact, the Emperor Julian was so upset with how fast Christianity was growing and paganism declining that he wrote a letter to his friend saying, why do we not observe how the kindness of Christian to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? For it is disgraceful when Christians support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our own are in want of aid from us. You see, what he's saying is people take care of their own, but the Christians are different. They're taking care of everyone. A neighbor loves all people. Now, Hamilton Baptist Church, you excel at loving each other. But how do we do about loving those outside our faith community? We're to love all people. Secondly, a neighbor loves all the time. I think you and I have a tendency to not not mind helping people when tragedy hits. I wasn't here when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and Mississippi, but the church I was at sent team after team after team down to people we've never met before to rebuild houses and to to help and to rescue people like that. We don't mind when tragedy hits. But what happens if if the tragedy is their own folly? What happens... If the hardship they're in the midst of is due to their own irresponsibility? What happens if they're reckless and therefore find themselves in great need? What happens if they brought it upon themselves? Well, I think then you and I have a tendency, don't we, to justify ourselves? I think, well, they don't deserve our help. Which is another way of saying they don't deserve my love. Right? Because love without help is not love. Read the book of James. Read the book of First John. The Samaritan would have looked at this dying Jew and would have concluded he's getting exactly what he deserves. This man is our enemy. This man is is living a life against God. He deserves this tragedy. This would have been his natural conclusion. But what does he do? He helps him anyways. I think Jesus is telling us, don't you dare limit your love to the times in which you think the people deserve it. You love all the time. By the way, Christian, does God love you only when you deserve it? Does He help you only when the tragedy is not due to your own folly? Great Puritan, American Puritan, Jonathan Edwards was dealing with this issue when he preached this passage. He said, we will help victims of tragedy, but not victims of folly. But then he reminded his church, Christ loved you and pitied you and relieved you from all misery you brought on yourself. Should we not love our neighbors as Christ has loved us? I'll tell you, if Jesus looked down upon this earth and said, I'm willing to help anyone who deserves my help, he could have saved himself a trip. Because there are none on this world that deserves him help. But what did he, he had compassion on you and on me. A neighbor does not scoff at the needy with pride in his heart, thinking you brought this on yourself. You're just reaping what you sow. I'm going on my way. Why, why should I have to inconvenience myself and sacrifice for such a reckless fool? It's not how a neighbor loves. It's not how Christ has loved you. A neighbor has compassion. Samaritan had compassion as Christ has compassion on you. A neighbor loves all the time. A neighbor loves all people. And thirdly, a neighbor loves with all he has. You notice His love is just not compassion. It's just not emotional. It's sacrificial. Neighbor love is hands-on, messy, time-consuming, stressful, inconvenient. Jesus, I think, is laboring to drive this point home. Consider again verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You notice his love is inconvenient. He stops in the way of his journey, right in the middle of journey. He gives up his journey to help him. His love is dangerous. The robbers may be nearby. Maybe they're waiting for someone to stop and help that they could rob another. The Samaritan, by most commentators, is risking his life not to hurry on by. His love is messy. He binds up wounds. He disinfects the, the the wounds. And I trust he does not have a first aid kit with him. But rather is ripping up his own clothing to make bandages using his own wine. His, his love is burdensome. He loads this man on his own animal and that he will walk the rest of the way by himself. His love is time consuming. He brings him to an inn. But you notice he doesn't dump and run. He doesn't think, okay, I certainly have done enough. He actually stays the night with him. Verse 35. And the Next day, his love is costly. He paid all his bills and more. If there's more to occur, he just says, put it on my tab." A neighbor love is inconvenient, dangerous, messy, burdensome, time-consuming, costly. We could probably say it's unbelievable. Who loves like that? Who loves like this? I mean, this man meets The needs of this other with such sacrifice, such urgency. You see what he's doing? He's loving his neighbor as himself. How would he want to be loved? He is doing that. And by the way, in order to make sense of this, do do you not think this man now has a platform for the gospel? I mean, the, the, the victim would have to know, why would you do this in order to make sense of it? neighbor loves with all he has once again we have a tendency to justify ourselves and if your heart is anything like mine the objection that i would naturally come up with is you know listen i would love to help if i had had the resources i would love you know my life is crazy i I have a lot going on right now and and if my life was easier then i would help you know if, if when things calm down and God brings needs in front of me, then I'll help. Or, uh, Listen, I, I, I can barely meet my own needs. I can barely pay my own bills. I just don't have the resources to help this man. Well, once again, Jonathan Edwards obje- uh, addresses this objection, this idea that I can't afford time, resources, money to help. He reminds his congregation of Galatians two, which says, Bear one another's burdens. I love what Edwards says. Listen to his words. I'm so happy that I came across this sermon. He says, if we never are obliged to relieve other burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do you bear their burdens? When you only do it when you bear no burden at all. Right? see what he's saying? He says you're not bearing their burdens if their burden does not burden you. So if you say, I can't afford to help, I don't have the time to help, I don't have the money to help, what you are saying is, I can't afford to help without burdening me. And Jesus says, exactly. Who told you that obedience to me is supposed to be easy, and only when it fits in with your schedule, and when you have ample resources to give to it? Is that how I've helped you, when it's only easy? It is to be a burden. You are to love with all you have. A neighbor loves all people, even those who hate you, loves all the time, even if they brought this upon themselves, loves with all you have, even when it's difficult. And I think when we, if we're honest and we look at that, we say, I mean, how do you live like that? How could I possibly do that? And it's almost as, as if Christ is himself putting a burden on us. Which leads me to my last point, which I think is the key to everything. A neighbor loves because he has been loved. Now, remember the question that started this whole conversation. What, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The answer, remember, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, if you do this, you live. So, so, friend, if you want to have eternal life, this is it. You love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So, loving God with everything. You love God continually continually. You love God perfectly. You love God with all you have all the time. It's very simple, isn't it? Hard to do, but simple. And by the way, once you have done that, you also have to love your neighbor as yourself, which I think is even harder because God is altogether lovely. You, on the other hand, um, and me, on the other hand, present barriers to love, don't we? And Jesus says, by the way, not just love your neighbor, but love them as you love yourself. That is, meet their needs with as much commitment and speed and power and urgency and dedication as you meet your own needs. And be as happy for them when their needs are met as when your needs are met. So just do that and you'll live, Christ says. Now, I think if you know yourself at all, whether you're a Christian or not, you know you haven't done this. In fact, you, you know you can't do this. Do this and live. That's not good news. That's the gavel falling. Guilty. You have failed. That's the gavel condemning us. This is what the law does. Romans 3.19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be shut. And the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of, you know what it is? Sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law shows us our sin. It destroys the foundation of self-righteousness upon which we want to stand. And this is what Christ is trying to do with the lawyer. This man who thinks he's pretty good. He's trying to break that foundation of self-righteousness by giving him a standard that he clearly cannot keep. And he says to him, just do this and you live. I think the lawyer is feeling the pressure. He knew what Jesus was doing. Hacking away on his foundation. And so instead of saying to Jesus, I can't do that. No one could do that. He he says and said well, okay, well, let's just whittle this down a little bit. Let's make this reasonable. Who's my neighbor? But Jesus won't let him do it. He won't let you do it. He says, no, no, no. I want you to love all people, and I, I want you to love them all the time, and I want you to love them with all you have. And we may hear this story, and we think we're back where we started. That's too hard. I can't do that. I, that's a burden on me. And if you are feeling burdened by this story... Then you are hearing it wrongly, because it's not supposed to be a burden. Because what Christ has given us here is not another law to follow; He is inviting us to a new life to live. Let me show you what it would have been a burden if Christ told the story differently. What if, what if Christ switched the characters in the story? What if the victim was a Samaritan, and the hero was you, just like the lawyer? And along comes the lawyer, and he sees the wounded Samaritan, and he gets off his horse, and he helps him with everything he can. And Jesus says, okay, now you go and do likewise. If, if that was the story, the lawyer would have heard, okay, another rule to follow. Okay, here's the story. What's the moral of the story? The moral is love all people all the time with all you have. Okay, I got the new rule. I got the moral. And now I, I need to go do this, even though there's no way I can. But Jesus doesn't tell the story that way. The victim is a Jew, right? Which raises the question for the lawyer. What if you were the one in great need? What if you were bleeding on the side of the road and your only hope was love from an enemy? Would you not want that love? Would you not want that grace? And if you received that grace, that love, from someone who owed you nothing but hatred, wouldn't that change you? Wouldn't that make you a different person? This is why he puts the lawyer in the dirt, receiving the help, not the hero giving it. Because once you receive that help from someone, it it makes you look at people differently. People you used to hate. People who are irresponsible. You begin to love them differently. You begin to live a new life. Wouldn't that grace, if you received it, make you the type of person who wants to give grace to other people? See, Christ is not giving you a new rule to follow. He's giving you a new life to live. Let me put it this way, Christian, before you can be a neighbor, you must first be neighbored. Before you can be the good Samaritan, you must first be the victim on the side of the road. And if you're the victim on the side of the road, then who in the world is the good Samaritan? Well, it's Jesus. He's the good Samaritan. He's the one who owes us nothing but rejection. He's the one who came when we are helpless and left for dead. With no one to blame but ourselves. The Bible told us dead in our transgressions and sin. And by the way, he simply didn't cross the road, but he traveled from heaven to earth. He's the one who has compassion on the sinner. In fact, in studying this passage, I learned that the, the word used to describe Jesus' emotional life more than any other word in the New Testament is the word compassion. He had compassion on us. He came to heal us. He came to take care of us. He came to pay all of our debts. And he did more than just giving us a day or two or a couple coins in his pocket. He gave us his blood. He gave us his body. He bore the wrath of God. And he, by the way, even promises to come back for us. I tell you, Jesus traveled at a much greater distance to help people in much greater need, at much greater cost to himself. He is the good Samaritan. He is the one who loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the one who loves his neighbor as himself, even his enemies as himself, dying for them. And so to answer the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You even see how it's phrased? You don't do anything to get an inheritance. You just receive it. You just receive it. Christ has completed the law. And now he offers you his record as an inheritance. He's done it perfectly. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, we're, we're delighted that you here, are here. If you would like eternal life, I, I will tell you based upon not my authority, but the authority of the word of God, how you can receive it. It is not by being a good person. It is not by loving your neighbor as yourself. It is by trusting in the one who has done that perfectly. He has completed the law. He has died upon the cross for our sins. He rose from the third day. And he has declared, if you will submit your life to me, you will live forever. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. He asked, Martha, do you believe this? He said, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. That is how you receive eternal life. Christian you see Christ to the degree you see Christ doing this in your life, finding you dead on the side of the road and an unimaginable expense to himself, raising you back, even though when he owed you nothing but the wrath of God, the degree you see him loving you like this is the degree in which you will find your life changing. And this kind of love being not a burden upon you, but the natural outgrowth of the gospel in your life. Go and live like this, not to receive eternal life, because you already have it. I wonder, are there an outcast in your life that needs a friend or a stranger who needs help or a child who needs a mentor or a a burden who needs encouragement or the lost who need the hope of Christ? Do this. Show the love of Christ not as another duty to perform, but as a new life to live for the advancement of His kingdom and for the glory of our Lord. Our Father, we pray that You would help us to be this type of, of person, this type of Christian, so impacted by the love of Christ in our lives that our lives would be so radically transformed that we would love like Christ. We would be so impacted by the love of Jesus in our life that we can't help. But, but long to love like this. And so we want to be thinking, how do I reduce the people to which I have to love? But instead, like Jesus, we'd be thinking, okay, Lord, show me who I get to love today. Show me who I get to sacrifice for today. Show me who I get to meet needs for today. Will you give us the eyes of Christ. We change us by the Gospel, by the good news that Christ has done the work for us. We have eternal life. Now, because we have it, let us live differently. Disciples love like Christ. And we pray for our friend here this morning who's not a Christian that's kept you at arm's length. We pray that they would even see the beauty of the love of Jesus for them in this wonderful story. Perhaps you put questions in their heart. Perhaps they could talk to people who brought them and create a conversation. Begin to dialogue about these truths. Maybe you would, even by your great spirit, bring them to faith even now, that they would pray, God, I cannot do what I know I ought to. I surrender my life. I ask for forgiveness. I believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for me and rose from the dead. I surrender everything. You're not moving their heart even now by your spirit. For their eternal life and for the glory of King Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.